The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering here to experience all the, the different ways we have met with you so far, and we now are thankful for your word, a chance to hear from you. And we ask you now, would you teach to open our minds and our hearts to what you say here, and would you then move it beyond just something said and heard and understood, or would you make it life-changing for us? Would you make us different individually and corporately? because of your word this morning. So speak, Lord. Clear out all distractions that may affect us and use your word to build your church. For our good and for your honor, we pray this. Thank you. Amen. Anybody who has spent any time flying on commercial airlines can more or less recite the standard pre-safety, pre-flight safety message. You know, there's where the exits are. Here's your seatbelt. Here's how it works. And in the unlikely event of the loss of cabin pressure, what happens? This plastic mask contraption will drop out of the ceiling, right? It could come down close to you. And parents, you traveling with young kids, those kids won't know what's going on. They're going to be afraid. They're going to be in danger. So whatever you do, be sure you put their mask on first. No. You attend to you first. Every single time they say that. Get yourself safely secured away. And obviously you're supposed to do that not because you're selfish. Obviously. You, you have to get yourself all, all squared away so that you are then in a position to help somebody else and not compromised and ending up with both people in trouble. No one able to help the other. So attend to yourself first if trouble arises on an airplane. A principle that holds for us, the church now, also as trouble arises here in the world as we approach the end. That's where we are now, here, have been for some time. We talked about this last week in 1 Peter 4, verse 7. We are in the last days at the very threshold of the final step in God's long plan of redemption. A lot of steps over a lot of years leading up to the last one, which is imminent. The only thing yet to happen is the return of Christ and the judgment that that brings. It's, it's right there. And life in this spot right now here as we wait, it's full of trouble. Jesus said so. We know so. We experience it. First Peter's talked a fair bit about that already. And that should lead us to pray. The second point we considered last week, verse 7. But also it should lead us to think very carefully and deliberately about how we, the church, are to be the church. How we are to attend to ourselves first. So that as everything else in the world all around us falls apart, we can and will stand and stand out 
to be attacked, yes, but also to be attractive. Many people, this is not unique to me, many people over the long centuries have made the common point that one of the biggest problems with Christian outreach in the world is Christians. One of the biggest problems with the church's mission in the world is the church. We haven't attended to ourselves and become and, and remained what we are to be so that we stand out and show something different. So show a community that is right and whole as the truth abides and, and in, fills us, is, is in the midst of us, that we become some place then that is at peace with ourselves, with one another, and displays that we are at peace with God as he fills the atmosphere here, as he's our focus and our joy. Our job as the church is to attend to ourselves so that that's what we are in the world. A place that is at peace, characterized by love here, and a place that is focused on God. That's what we're supposed to be about, focused on God, not ourselves. So that's what we're going to look at today. 1 Peter chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11, but really I'll be focusing on 8 through 11. We already looked at 7 last week. We think about how we are to be a community of love that is filled with the glorious grace of God, which is for our good, for God's glory, but also a key part of what it is that we show to the world around us that watches. So let me read the passage and then draw two observations from it. 1 Peter 4, beginning verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Two observations. Here's the first. Above all, Love the people of God to make a place of peace. Above all, love the people of God to make a place of peace. Verse 8 begins by alerting us that what's about to follow is of top priority, must be prioritized. He, Peter once heard Jesus teach something. You can read this in John 13. A commandment about loving one another, and here Peter is going to repeat that. And underline it, this is of first importance. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, fervently, intensely. This is language that's about, about attitude, about something that's within us that leaves no room for some sort of an amicable but distanced niceness. We, we sometimes think, I don't have any conflicts with anybody here, so I'm okay. That's, that's not here. 
That, that's good, but that's not here. He's, he wants more than that. He says there's something here that should be about a heart attitude of affection with compassionate concern for the good of others and then a willingness to die to yourself for the sake of that good in the other. I've got an attitude here and then a willingness to, to lay down myself to see this other one blessed, prospered, helped. That's fervent, earnest love. And grammatically, it's an ongoing, never-ending priority. You see, keep loving, and, and what he means is all the time until the end comes. That's the context here. The end is at hand. All the time until the end comes, here's what you do. Top priority, keep loving one another. That's Christians in the church, one another. Those you come in contact with day by day and week by week, which right away says you do come in contact with them day by day and week by week, right? There's no such thing. You see the, the assumption kind of written into this. The assumption is that if you're a Christian, you're in the body. There's no such thing. There's, there's no compliance with the Scripture to be a Christian who is not in the body. How, how in the world do you earnestly love the people that you never are around? There's, there's an assumption here that the body works like a body, the family works like a family, that you're in it. And day by day, week by week, as you see them, the people of God love them earnestly, continually. This is all focused, this whole section is focused on us inside. Certainly, certainly there are other passages that talk about how we are to love those out there too, love your neighbors, for sure. You can find that elsewhere. In fact, a lot of what we've been talking about in chapters 2 and 3 up to this point is about that, about blessing others, about doing good to those who are around us, the, the world generally out there. That, that's all true. But this point is the top priority to love the church first. The same point has already been made in chapter 1, verse 22. Having become a Christian... By obeying God's call to trust him, he says there's something was planted inside of us, a sincere brotherly love that yet needs to be enacted on specific people. And so in chapter 1, like here, same command, love one another earnestly, love the body. That's what's laid in front of us here. And then he helps us by saying, Why? gives a reason. Second half of the verse, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's a reason for this love. He's quoting half of Proverbs 10, verse 12. And the first half of that proverb clarifies how we're supposed to think about the second half. Part that he's quoted here. The first part says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over a multitude of sins. So the polar opposites of hate and love, and hatred stirs up. It leads to something, conflict, strife. But then love, on the other hand, leads to what? Covered over sin, which is to say leads to peace, opposite of strife. That's how we're supposed to hear this, this command that he's putting in front of us here. The assumption is that sin is going to happen between people because we are people. Even Christians, we're, 
We're still sinners. So between us, things are going to happen. In our small groups and in our, our board meetings when we gather, I mean, here on a Sunday morning, tonight at the family night, somebody's going to say something or do something that's going to like bend you a little bit. That's going to happen. In your home with your, your parents, your spouse, your, your kids, if, if you have that, it, whatever that is, something's going to happen. Sin will be. And the question is, which way does it go? Does, does it go towards strife or does it go towards peace? And notice, it's going to go one or two ways and the key, which way it goes, is based not on how much self-control you have. It's not just, I bite my tongue and I don't respond. That's how it becomes peace. Those are good things. But the key, which way that sin goes, it's going to go one of two ways. It's going to go towards strife or towards peace. The key is, in your heart, love for the other, yes or no. That's the key. Do you love or do you hate? Now you might think, well, neither really. I'm kind of indifferent in the middle. Well, the Bible drops a line. The, the, the Bible's language is always like this. It's always extreme to, to drop a line and, and clarify something. That there isn't the middle here. There's love or hate. You either earnestly love or you don't. And the opposite of earnest love is the effect of. And that produces strife. So what he lays in front of us then, do you, do you care for this other person? Do you have in you a compassionate eye towards her? Are you willing to die to yourself for the sake of her good? Are you willing to, to see the sin and to see the person behind the sin and to say, okay, I understand, and I'm, I'm drawn to that person, and I want to lay down my rights, lay down my demands, lay down what should be. I, I've just bent in some way, but I'm going to look past that, lay it down, and cover it over with love. Or are you frankly just irritated that she did that again, carelessly, that he is that way? Which is it? That's the divide dropped. Love or other. Sin's going to go one or two ways. And what he calls us to is to love earnestly with a heart attitude of compassion towards and a willingness to die to self for the good of the other that's willing to cover over and overlook sin. Like Christ did for us. Right? I mean, I almost don't have to preach this sermon. You can almost see that, like, I think I know where that's going. I think I have some idea where he modeled that, where that came from. Why Jesus said what he said in John 13 is because he's right in front of the cross where he's going to supremely show what fervent love looks like, what a heart of compassion that's willing to die to self looks like. That's how Christ has been with us. And that's what he calls us to be too. To love, to be willing to suffer, so as to lay down my rights and cover over sin, which doesn't necessarily mean that the sin is completely ignored. 
Because sometimes sin should not be completely ignored. It should be confronted and addressed because God also does that with us too, right? When he covers over our sin, he also then, as a, as a parent to a child, lovingly disciplines us and sometimes confronts our sin and says, son, daughter, that needs to be dealt with. But in an atmosphere of fervent love, it can be dealt with. In atmosphere of strife, it won't be. So maybe it's confronted as it's covered over. But it's not used against you. It's not held against your account. That's the key. Love says, I see the sin. I feel it. I'm going to look past it and not hold it against this one's account. That's how Christ was with us. That's how we're called to be with others. That's the kind of place we're supposed to make. And is it not the kind of place we want? We need a place like that. To be the kind of people who, who experience, who actually live in some sort of a haven like that here in the world. We need families and a church family that functions as a place where I can be honest and broken and not discarded. Can you imagine that? To some degree, I can say this is probably true for all of us to some degree, and some of us to a great degree. We spend, expend a lot of energy covering. Because if you really saw me like that, if you really knew what color underwear I had on right now, Metaphorically. Right? We, we cover. Because if you really saw that, that'd be the last time you talked to me. And so we spend a whole bunch of energy just covering. Which makes you look good, maybe. But is tiring and exhausting and deceptive. Because that's not who you actually are. We all know this about one another, that we are far worse off than we present. There's a whole lot more yuck going on up here. There's a whole lot more unguarded words spoken in quiet or in confidence. We, we know that that's true about us. Sin is. And sometimes that comes out accidentally, but wouldn't it be wonderful if when it came out, or when I let the guard down and said, here's who I am, if what I met was not, then get out of here but was instead, come near. We might have to address that. We might have to create an environment in which God addresses that, but come here. Don't go out and get away. Come near. Wouldn't it be, can you imagine, it would be incredible to actually be welcomed as who you actually really are. We want a place like that. We need a place like that. Safe, Forgiven, embraced, and then confronted maybe if necessary. Because some sins should not be let live, let, let to live. But that's a community of peace, a community of love that is completely unique to the human experience. That's what God made the church to be. An atmosphere that is characterized by peace 
and feels like earnest love because that's what it is. It's a little bit of a foretaste of heaven here. Not perfectly because we're, we're us, but a little bit of a foretaste of heaven here. Really unique in the world. And one way in particular that that could be seen and experienced, verse 9, almost an application of verse 8, is hospitality without grumbling or complaining. Technically, the word in verse 9 is the word, the adjective, hospitable. Which maybe helps us a little bit to get a proper application of it. Because sometimes when we hear the word hospitality, we only think of one really narrow thing. Inviting somebody over to your house for a meal. But hospitable is larger. It, it exists in all kinds of contexts. Someone who is hospitable is cordial and generous receptive and welcoming of others in all sorts of venues, including your home, yes, but very varied places. Everywhere welcoming one into your, into your personal space, so to speak, into your time, into your relational depth, into your life. Hospitable people receive others into relationship rather than holding them at a formal arm's length. Now, you, you can't do that all the same with all people everywhere. That's not human. It's not realistic for the way God's made us all different. But the point is, you're not allowed to just be close to your besties. And everybody else is a stranger. A hospitable person is welcoming and is open and receives people and is genuine with them. And is so as a desire to show, here's what love looks like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get close enough to be loved and to love you. And I'm going to do so without complaining, which is, isn't that a, a realistic qualifier of this? Because we all know as soon as that happens, there's going to be plenty of opportunity for complaint. You get close to other people, at least when I get close to other people, I find lots of reasons to complain in other people. Somebody... Sometime back, a person once remarked to me that nothing cures conflict like a thousand miles. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. But there's a... What this is getting at here is saying, like, given that you're not going to be a thousand miles from somebody else, because you're not, because you're a body, you're going to be together. Given that you're not, you're going to be near, you're going to find opportunity for conflict. And this is a call on us. Love in peace that's welcoming and isn't complaining. That has no grumbling and murmuring in it. Because really, grumbling and murmuring is a complaint against God who created the circumstance in which you are near to that person who is so annoying. Think about that. I get my friend, I talk to my friend about how bothersome that person is. What am I doing? 
What are you doing in that situation? Grumbling against the God who made all of that and determined it would be and it would be in this way at this time right there. And I would call you and forbid you from running a thousand miles. I'd hold you close and cause it to be challenging. And what rises up out of us so often, brothers and sisters, is not against that person. I'm smiling out there. But in private and in my heart, against God. The God who made the circumstance, who made the situation, and promised me to provide what I need and whom I am not trusting. To draw near, to be hospitable, to welcome near, and to love without complaining. That's the call on us. That's the kind of people that we are to be. As you think that through, complaining might just be a sign of your distrust and of your frustration with God and an evidence of your need to grow in love. We've already alluded to it, but how does that happen? If you think, if you think about this, this is almost pie-in-the-sky impossible. It would have been reasonable if he had said, do certain loving things. I get the fact that many Christians want to talk about how love is a verb. I, I get the fact. And in fact, being hospitable kind of gets a little bit at that. We want to talk about how love is a verb because we don't want to leave it just at feelings. We want to talk about things that you actually do to express love. Fair enough. But that's not what he says here. He's talking about attitude of earnestness because he's talking about your heart. And right there, if you grab that, a whole, grab that you say, I wish it was a verb. Because then I could just do it and check the box off. I could figure out what would it be to love this person. I would do that. I would do that. I would welcome them to my home. I'd have a dinner. I'd keep my mouth shut and I wouldn't complain. Check. And I would be good. But he says, nope. I'm talking about an earnest, heartfelt attitude within you. And check yourself. You can't make yourself love anything. You can know that you should love it, but you can't make yourself love it. There are people who are around you, situations that you know you're supposed to love and supposed to want to and supposed to enjoy and supposed to resonate with, and you don't. He's called you, he's called all of us to something that's actually impossible, that with us we cannot do. Apart from God, we can't. Okay, then, I guess move on to the second point. No. It sits. It's right there. What do you do with that? How do you become more like what he's calling us to? To a love that is real and alive and earnest in the heart. Well, you recognize what the Bible says is that we love because he first loved us. So Christian... Don't try to be more loving. Don't try to be more loving. First, behold the love of God for you. Do you behold the love of God for you? Do you realize and do you make it a habit to hunt for the evidence? Do 
and then to reflect upon what you find. To look for and then, and then turn up and then hold in front of yourself regularly how wide and long and high and deep and wise and strong and persistent is the love of God for you. I promise you that if you're stuck in complaining and you're, you're finding yourself loveless and you're put off from the body of the church that you have not considered and do not regularly embrace and rest in the love of God for you, You may know it up here, but you don't rest in it and soak in it. It isn't running through you like water fills up a sponge. The almighty creator king is for you so much that he saved you in Christ and then is consistently from now on attentive to your needs like a careful mother with a newborn. Eye on the baby, ear open to the cry. What's the reality there? What's needed? My heart is compassionate for you. I am, I am willing to engage everything I have to bless you and bring you to prosperity and to maturity and wholeness. That's a mother for a child because God made that in humans because that's how God is for us. You realize that's the order? He didn't discover mothers are like that for babies and say, I should be like that. Or discover mothers like the babies and say, I'm going to actually use that and explain it. Not all females who generate offspring are like that. Human mothers are like that for their babies. Because God said, I want to leave you a testimony. That's how I am for you. I birthed you and I could no longer like, walk away and not hear your cry than a mother could have a newborn baby. That's God's love for you, Christian. Earnest and deep and persistent. His grace and his mercy and his power and his wisdom is engaged always to do you good, to do the best good for you, to give you a hope and a future. Do you hunt for that evidence in the scriptures and in your life? Or do you not? Hunt for it and hold it up and remind yourself of this. This is who he is for me, what he has made for me, a future. He has secured you in his love. The God of love then is your hope. He's meant to captivate us and to support us and sustain us and to convince us that we can rest in him and that then from his fullness we can give life away. And it's not just a logical conclusion like I, I kind of checked the bank account and I've got this much money then I can afford to give that much away. It's not that logical. It's supernatural and internal. And at the same level of you can't make yourself love, you suddenly discover that you do. You might write the same size check, but this time you wanted to. You might have the same people over for dinner, but this time you actually delighted in it. Something happens in us as we regularly rest in the God of love. We become a people of peace and a place of peace when we rest in the truth that he first loved us. We need and we want such a place as the end draws near. A haven a little bit of a taste of home.
So I'm leaving that point. I'm going to move on to the second one here. I often find that when I preach, because of my personality, when I preach about love, I sometimes create something that is, I'm saying this so that if it happened in you, that just alert you to it and maybe you can like mentally get over it. I sometimes create in some people a disconnect because I'm talking about love and it sounds like I'm too like amped up. Shouldn't it be more like lovey-dovey and gentle? And That's just not me. So if you were kind of like a disconnect there, he's talking about love, but he's not like lovey. Sorry. <laughs> so get over that and, and hear the message. Just truth in advertising. <laughs> we need to be a place like that, a, a, a people of love and a people who have an earnest concern for one another, and, and that's, that's what the church is made to be. Something when you come in the doors, it feels different. That's the first observation. Here's the second thing. Use your gift for the church to make much of God, not people. Use your gift for the church to make much of God, not people. Verse 10, Peter moves to talk about how each has received a gift and the word that's there is the word for spiritual gift that we see in a number of the places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12 is a great place if you want to jot it down and look at it later to learn more. But he's talking about spiritual gifts. There are lists in lots of different places, these things that are supernaturally given by God, by his spirit. And none of the lists are, are the same, none of them are exhaustive probably because there is such a wide range and a wide variety of type and degree that it would be impossible to write out every single one of them. The initial point here, though, as elsewhere, is that every Christian, each one, it says, has at least one such gift. When God saved you, he made you a new creation in Christ, he, by his spirit working in you, then gave you the ability to be or to do something with supernatural effect. Sometimes it's something that you could never at all do before in any way. I think, though, often, in retrospect, we notice kind of a dovetailing between the supernatural work of the Spirit in us and the natural way that God made us beforehand because it makes sense. God knows where he's going when he makes you. So there's, there's some sort of a, of a natural bent or a creation in you that then is, if you will, kind of like supercharged with the Holy Spirit. I think most of the time spiritual gifts work like that. But the point here, if you, if you want to think about what, what your gift is and you just get involved in the body and you see how God uses you, but the point here is that you have at least one. You are gifted. And just as you receive that gift, so use it. Freely you received, freely give. Use it to serve one another. To serve Christians in the church, again. 
Sometimes our gifts apply to others out there, but his focus is on the church, one another. That's the purpose of God in giving them. Again, as 1 Corinthians 12 said, they are for the common good. God's design of this body then is a fascinating thing, that, that we're all put together and we have things that we need that we aren't given personally. I have needs that are given to you and vice versa. God designed all the world like that, but, but particularly designs the church like that. And the supernatural, the spiritual needs that, that I have are not all in me and vice versa for you. We are to use them to serve the church in this interconnected group of people, this body, with no rivalry and no pride. It, it's, again, a remarkable thing. It exists in the world where people like work with one another and have abilities and gifts that they don't stand on and boast in, but humbly use to serve. This is another way that we live out this earnest love. He's given us particular gifts that he means us to use freely, liberally as stewards of God's grace, the passage says. A steward is a servant in a household, a manager of, of the affairs of a household, using the things that the master owns. It's the master's house, but the steward is kind of the guy or the gal who would run things, use what's given for the blessing of the house. To be a steward of God's resources is to use the things we're given. To not use them would be to impoverish the body. Bad stewardship. So use what you have. And we want to use it well, appropriately. Verse 11, for example, whoever speaks, which is a very broad category, not specific, on purpose, it would include obvious things like preaching and teaching, but also things like if, if you look through some of the various lists, you'd see things like utterances of wisdom or knowledge or prophecy, encouragement, and so on. Whoever speaks, being a good steward means you speak as one speaking oracles of God. We speakers speaking, our manner must be one that befits a person who's delivering a message from God. Not flippant, irreverent, not prone to fleshly entertainment and worldly mechanisms. You can do all kinds of stuff that people think are interesting, attractive, funny, and not appropriate for somebody who is speaking the oracles of God. That doesn't mean you always have to have like a deep, serious voice and you, you can't ever be light. It means you recognize this is a supernatural moment and I and we we all think of it like that and treat it appropriately no game no show and the one who serves again another example but extremely broad because serving I mean how broad is that it's almost like everything else the one who serves recognizes that I'm nothing. Unless the Lord builds the house, I labor in vain. I can't do it. The only thing that happens here that means anything that is, that is, all, that is all useful is provided by the strength of God that works in and through the servant. And the servant who is a good steward recognizes that I have that in mind. 
I serve by the strength that God has supplied, not my own. Now, we could go on. That's pretty familiar to us. You could expand those categories. You could, you could dive into specifics. You, you could find more stuff there. But really, the fact that he skips all the details kind of points out to us that he's not really concerned with the details. He's got another idea, something else he's after here. He's concerned with not what would be detailed or most effective. He's concerned with who gets made much of in all this. The person or God? Sort of like this, middle of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. That's the key that God may be glorified, or we could say magnified, made much of. Gifts are to be used to bless the body, but when they're used well, they're used in such a way that neither the body nor the actual gifted person becomes the focus and the story, but God remains the focus and God is the story because that's the focus and the story of the entire Bible. The story of all the creation, of all of God's redemptive work, the story of every church and of every individual Christian's life is not actually primarily about me or us or our nation. It's the story of God. It's all about him and his purposes and his glory that he would get the credit for anything good that happens in my life or happens in our collective life That's the focus, that's the concern. So that he would be seen and would be understood, would be known and would be rested in. Because we wouldn't think that, oh, we need Steve or, oh, we need so-and-so. We need God and we always have him. The people come and go, but God remains. And God's the one who gave the strength, and God's the one who gave the gifts. He's the one who has accomplished anything here. Good stewardship, then, is extremely careful to point back through the human being to the God who empowered it all, the God who supplied all the grace. And not just God in general, as the world world commonly speaks of him, but God in Christ. To point back to God through Jesus. The church is a place that is gifted because Christ. We're careful to lift him up and make clear that we are not just about God, but about God in Christ. A church that is concerned to make much of this God will stand out and be a blessing. Now, I recognize as I say all this, a lot of us here, we hear a lot of that a lot of the times, and we think like, Good. I, I agree with that. I'm thankful about that. I'm, maybe I'm helped by the reminder. That's a good thing. Okay. Have you thought about the world in which we exist right now? This world is a place that, that would find a, a community, a body like that, so very refreshing because the world is absolutely enslaved to self. 
to ego, to making one's own significance, to finding one's own purpose and being true to one's own feelings and destiny, whatever that seems to be this week. Out there, this world that we live in right now is lost and is crushed under the demand. Think of the, the demand the world puts on people that you prove yourself something. That you prove yourself to be good at something. That you prove yourself to be worthy of something. Worthy of being respected. Worthy of being welcomed. And at least worthy of being followed by a few people on Instagram. That's what the world demands of us. And we are set to taking up the resources around us, gathering them together, and employing them all as tools to prove ourselves. And the vanity and the superficiality and the crushing pressure of it all is producing a pandemic of anxiety and depression as people fail at that. Anxiety and depression is through the roof. Why is that? Why is that? Because I have to prove myself, and I'm not sure I can. Or I am just barely, like I'm just barely keeping my nose just above the water, and that's, that's a lot of pressure. Everything in this world right now, and it's been this way for a long time, I think that social media makes it worse. This is, nothing's new under the sun, but I think that social media is new under the sun, and that makes this worse. Everything out there right now is pushing us all towards gather what you have and use it to show yourself worthy. And can you imagine a place where that is right off, off the table? where we all out of the gate acknowledge we're not worthy and every resource that we gather is just a gift given to show that somebody else is worthy. Where I do something and you say, great job, and neither one of us is that impressed. Because we both know I didn't do it. Where I look at you and you perform and I say, man, what strength you have. And we, neither one of us say, well, you know, it's just the strength that God provided. Right, I know. So really, I'm just actually saying, praise the Lord for that in you. I'm not remotely impressed. You're just flesh failing. You've got a few more decades at best, and you're gone. He, his gifts, his grace remains. All praise be to him. And you say that vice versa back to me, and there's no pressure. There's no anxiety. It's all relieved. We are a place that does perform, but performs in the strength that God provides to the glory of God, not self. It's so freeing. Can you imagine it? You should because that's what we should be. And the only reason that we can be is that God, who is everything, became nothing. He himself is the only one worth being gloried in, worth being made much of, but he humbled himself as a servant, born in an insignificant manger in a nowheresville town, and he lived impoverished and homeless and died cursed on a cross, the criminal's death. So that you could then make much of him. 
And then in the greatest of all ironies, this is bizarre. It is, it is so wrong, it's beautifully right. What comes out the end of that is that God makes much of you. Loving you vast, wide, long, high, deep, persistently, wisely, powerfully. That makes no sense, but it's the gospel. The king humbled himself to save us, to make much of us, ironically. Not because of anything in us, but because of everything in him. All praise be to the God of the Bible, the only God who is. All glory and dominion is his. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.